Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. I'm going to keep the introduction brief today as I'm actually going to be interviewing fellow host of Informed Performance, Mr. Ben Ashworth. Me and Ben speak regularly, but we decided to talk shoulders so that on this occasion I could be selfish and ask Ben questions and simultaneously share the conversation with you, the listeners. The timing of this conversation is perfect as Ben will actually be in North America to deliver his athletic shoulder courses at the end of the month. Ben has over 20 years of experience in the business and has been described as a thought leader in this space by other experienced shoulder experts from sports science and sports medicine backgrounds. Ben's outcome-driven approach, based around his research, will creatively challenge the way that you think about shoulders. I urge you to check out Ben's athletic shoulder courses as there's limited places available on Eventbrite. You can find the links on Ben's Instagram bio at Athletic Shoulder, or you can also find out the details on his website, athleticshoulder.com. Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald, and here is today's guest, Ben Ashworth. Ben, it's uh, it's good to have you on our show. It's a weird, it's a weird uh, context to introduce you to because it's your show as well. But um, yeah, let's <laughs> let's do a, an episode between hosts. That sounds like a great idea. I'm going to get my own back at some stage, Andy. So so uh, I'm, I look forward to that one. So obviously, our listeners will already have heard you and know who you are. But just in case this is a new listener listening now, do you want to give a really brief uh, intro to yourself? Yes, that's a great idea. I think uh, I've been in the industry for uh, over 20 years now, predominantly a physiotherapist by trade. So I graduated in 1997 and started working in sport in 2002 in rugby and then progressed through Olympic sports all the way through to uh, the London 2012 Olympics, Um, managed to pick up a master's in physio and a master's in strength and conditioning, which is a really good kind of career differentiator and was really useful for my own personal development. Then as a shoulder specialist, I took a job in football, which is always a big question that people ask, but I think people can understand why you would go from an Olympic funded sport to a Premier League funded opportunity. And I was at Arsenal for six years as first team physio there, working with a great team and left in 2018, had a small midlife retirement, uh, an opportunity to go and see people, meet people and develop some good relationships, which have lasted through till today. And then got the chance to go and be a director of performance in Europe for a soccer team and uh, spent the last three years in Prague and two months ago at the end of the season I left Prague to come home and to set up my athletic shoulder business and a performance consultancy. So obviously you've had you know a very dramatic change of work and location again recently. Um, Do you want to talk I know you've always got lots of uh, strings to your bow do you want to talk through the different things that your your current work life entails at the moment? Well, the, the beautiful thing is actually that the, one of the main reasons for coming home was you know, to, to put family first. I've had all these lovely opportunities in my career and I've spent a lot of time away from my family who've been extremely understanding and highly supportive. But um, you know, I, I definitely made that decision to come back because of them. But now that I'm back home, I've got this lovely opportunity. I've built an outside office, which is where I'm kind of doing a lot of my work from. And I get the opportunity to travel where I want to, to meet the people I want to meet. And I've got a couple of things on my plate. So, you know, ultimately to build the athletic shoulder business to where I want it to be, 
over the next few years. I want to have a an arm where I can see clients. So I'm going to be looking to do some sessions in London. Um, and that's already on its way, but I want to formalize that and make sure that we've done the necessary paperwork before I announce where that's going to be in London. But I'll be seeing some athletes in, in central London. Then there's the education piece. So I've been developing my own shoulder courses, but I'm still continuing and finishing my PhD, which is in the kind of key determinants of throwing performance and health. And that's at Liverpool Hope University. So I'm looking to try and finish that. I've got until 2025 to finish that, but ideally I'm going to break the back of that this year and see if I can get that done by 2023. And then I think probably the most exciting work is the consultancy with teams. And that takes some different forms. It's, working with a wide variety of teams across the world. Um, Recently, that's pulled me more towards baseball. And I've been working with one of the teams for 18 months now. And I'm doing some other work with some other teams there too, as well as being on an NFL um, shoulder injury prevention task force. I was invited to, to be a part of that. And so... The work is varied, which is great. I've got a portfolio which is almost exclusively athletic shoulders, which I think allows me to focus. But there's enough variety within that to you know keep my interest and keep my curiosity ticked. And obviously, you mentioned you're doing some. You, you mentioned you're doing some courses, mate. And I, you know, I know they're going to be in the states. Um, where where are you actually going to be? Where are the courses that people can sign up for? So next. Thursday, I'm traveling to Vancouver. So we're going to do a course there, an athletic shoulder course, uh, calling it the outcome driven approach uh, in Vancouver. Obviously, we can put some details and link that to the episode. But then I'm traveling as part of that trip down through Seattle. And then we'll end up in Las Vegas, where we're doing a course on the 29th um, at the UFC Apex. And then I head across to Arizona after that to spend some time with with one of the baseball teams I'm working with um, before heading back to the UK. Very cool. And, you know, I know you've had courses in the UK uh, previously um, for clinicians, but what's the, you know, what's the course topic? What what are people going to be learning on your course? Yeah, so, I mean, those people who know me and have spent time working with me know that I, I I'm, lo- I'm very objective. I like to um, make decisions based on uh, available information. Largely, that's around data. So, you know, I set up a lot of monitoring processes in the past through Olympic sports and then through Premier League football. And I've taken those concepts and applied them to monitoring the shoulder and the upper limb. And that's become quite a niche. And so what you get is not, just a data course where we look at you know just how you measure force production how you measure range of motion but the so what factor is well what do you do with it you know and the key is taking the learning and the application from applying that monitoring process and those testing processes in sports over the last few years and then seeing what we can do to then program to effect change And so that's the key thing is this outcome driven approach is trying to make sure that we simplify the shoulder as much as we can amidst all of the complexities around how, you know, you have to navigate a shoulder and how it works in in an elite sport setting, but simplify it into boxes that people can measure and then use that to direct their decision-making. And I think that will hopefully add some value to, you know, all sorts of practitioners, whether it's strength and conditioning coaches, athletic trainers, physiotherapists, of course, being one myself, try and just link that kind of, you know, medical aspect with the more the performance arm and bring that together around some, some objective data. That's where the course sits. And I'll just sort of give a couple of examples. Basically we found a real benefit of using isometric training and 
mid to high load isometric training over the last few years, working with a number of teams across a number of sports. And what we found with that was it really has a large impact on force production when we measure that using things like dynamometry. Um, so we could look at someone, you know, and test them today, and then we program them with some isometrics, some small doses, some reasonably high high loads for the shoulder, and we'd remeasure them maybe in two weeks or four weeks, and we'd see a really impressive change in their ability to apply force. And I think one of the biggest things that I've been committing to and I am committed to is to get out this shoulder content online and I'm going to be producing a modular athletic shoulder course. Uh, At the moment, I'm aiming for September release and that's for part one. And for part two, I'm hoping that that will be ready by January. Now, as anybody who's put a course together and has tried to structure it knows, there's a hundred steps to go before it, you know, is finally at the level of quality that I want it to be at in terms of the videos and the editing. But um, I am going to commit to that, put myself under a bit of pressure by putting it on this podcast that that will be ready for people. And it will be targeted at practitioners who, you know, want to take their level of shoulder learning to a, to a better place and to start to sort of challenge themselves around kind of taking that to like uh, toward, towards a master's level. Um, so there'll be something in there for everybody, even if you're, you know, very experienced. Um, I think that there will be added value there. And then off the back of that, there'll be some masterclasses, which will be the sort of, you know, the gold or the cherry on the cherry on the icing on the cake for those people who, um, you know, ultimately probably know about as much about shoulders as I do. Um, but by putting something out there, I'm looking to generate a kind of community of like elite practitioners around those masterclasses to try and then help shape some of those courses um, as I tweak those over the coming years. Interesting, man. Very interesting. Um, and we'll obviously look, link the, the, you know, the course dates and all the information people need to find in the show notes and we'll probably link it at, uh, at the end of the episode as well. When we talk about it again. Um, let's talk about the ash test. Let's kind of get into the, the meat and veg of the, of the episode. Um, obviously you've spoken about it before, but, can you, just in case, again, there's someone that's just discovering you now, can you give an explanation for an ash test virgin, if we call them that? Um, can you kind of explain the, te- the test itself and give some, some basic context? Yeah, of course. Um, well, the ash test was developed off the back of doing a lot of testing with lower limbs. So there's some really good force platform testing uh, that was used. Was Alan McCall and Greg DuPont developed this lower limb isometric test using a force platform for hamstrings and posterior chain and so we were using that at arsenal and then i got into some discussions with daniel cohen who is my go-to for force platform stuff and the team at saracens at the time and the test came about because saracens were trying to problem solve shoulders that were strong you know could bench press high loads could test with short levers and pass dynamometry tests but ultimately when they were put in vulnerable long lever positions they would break down so return to contact drills uh they experienced players would experience instability some symptoms a lack of willingness to produce high forces so the ash test captures that and it takes the learnings from the force plate and the lower limb testing and the usefulness of that in making decisions and applies it to the upper limb in long lever positions so it's i'm sure again we can link it but it's not it's not one for radio this one but or for podcast but lying on your front in three different positions basically a fully abducted position so at 180 degrees a y test position at 135 and a t test at 90 degrees and it's pushing down into the platform so it's in a sort of horizontal flexion direction if you like um it's a maximal isometric test and the idea of using the force platform and not just a dynamometer was that we can get reliable rates of force development and not just peak forces and so that's the that's the test itself um in its early form and it's 
something we published and we did a reliability piece on it, pretty non-sexy reliability study, which was published in the BOSEM. And since then, uh, I've been contacted by teams who've and, and people who've either applied the version that I put together with the team at Saracens, or they've taken it a step further or tried to modify it for their own context. And so there's now quite a lot of interest worldwide in using a force platform test of the upper limb. Um, but I think the concept itself has, uh, has tweaked the curiosity of quite a lot of people who work with that kind of population. Yeah, and obviously I think the, the thing I've been aware of over time is that it's gone from being maybe a, a clinical test for determining return to play to being also something that could be used for monitoring. And it's, it's got kind of, I'm sure it's got even more evolved uses now no doubt yeah i mean as with uh, we we always say don't we that sort of you know that the research kind of catches up or never really stays up with practice well i think when you're working with teams in america and a lot of that good work is hidden behind ndas then you know people don't really know how it is being applied but conceptually um Conceptually, it has been used with great success as a monitoring tool in, in different capacities and different sports. And there's still, a, I mean, you know, there's so much we don't know about it. Let's be, let's be honest, there's so much we don't know about a lot of things, but we're starting to build some more experience around the test. And then more research is coming out. You know, the, the number of people that are citing the original paper now is really interesting it's starting to grow and people are publishing independent ash test research and coming to me and asking me if i if they can you know use some of the data from the original test and do some kind of cross validation work so I, i'm really glad that was the in, initial intention was to put it out there um to make it open access so that people um you know took the original idea and and uh, and ran with it excellent and you know obviously one of the one of the obvious metrics that comes out of the test when you're doing it is rate of force development. And one of the things I've been wondering is, you know, how do you personally decide what that rate of force cutoff time frame or, or snapshot should be depending on the athlete or the sport? Because obviously I'm sure it's different depending on, on the shoulder and the, the sort of physical requirements of that shoulder in its, in its game. Yeah. I, I kind of go back to, Again, a lot of the good stuff with upper limbs is just applying all of the work that's been done with lower limbs. And so if you think about, you know, I mean, I, I'm a shoulder specialist, but I've done a little bit with lower limbs having worked in elite football. And so we did two days after a game, we used to do a drop jump. And uh, we didn't keep doing that for too long because the players didn't like it because it was pretty high, pretty high explosive load high forces two days after a game. So we quickly canned that because there were only about two players that could do it. But the we turned it into a CMJ for those who want the answer to that. Um, but in that, we were saying it's not a drop jump when we're testing and profiling athletes if they go over 250 milliseconds for the contact time. So we dis we disregard it. We'd say it's not a drop. It doesn't count. And from what we've seen with upper limb, and we're talking about conscious activation here. So you, there's a three, two, one countdown. So it's conscious. It's not reactive. You, you're ready to produce force, and it's how fast you can produce that force, you know, under your own volition. And so if you're, again, looking at windows outside of 200, 250 milliseconds, then I wouldn't class it as RFD. If you go back to a lecture that I gave about five years ago, I was talking about rates of force development with handheld dynamometers. And I think, you know, people were producing peak forces after about one and a half seconds. Well, that's not rate of force development, you know, and I know better now. But what that is, is it's a marker of how quickly they're happy to build up force. And it's pretty useful after injury as a blunt tool. But when we're dealing with the meaningful actions of injury and the meaningful actions of the sporting context, you have to look at that narrow short-term time frame, which has to be around 200, 250 milliseconds. I've saw this on a post recently, and I've, I've seen you present on this as well. But, um, you know, 
you've, you've got like a quadrant model and obviously there's different quadrant models in sport for different contexts, but you've got one um, specific to the ash test and shoulders. Um, I know, I know one of them for you is a quadrant model around upper extremity force times lower extremity force. Can you kind of talk through that one first and then we'll get into some kind of more smaller nuances of it after? Yeah. Everybody loves a quadrant. So uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they... There are a lot of quadrants going around the place, but um, yeah, one thing that I, having come from a lower body sort of monitoring space and trying to apply it into upper body, I think we know that with our kind of, if we like more dominant upper body athletes, maybe throwing athletes, um, uh, we have to use a ground up approach, right? The forces have to be generated from somewhere. And I had some really good conversations with Alex Wolf back in the day um, and Chris McLeod at the LTA. And a lot of these discussions and really good conversations with people, you end up sort of learning as you, as you go. And I think, you know, that the idea that we have to understand the contribution of the lower body to these throwing athletes is not new, but, I think what is new is that people are measuring a lot of lower body force production tests. You know, they're looking at CMJ, they're looking at ISO mid thigh pull, let's say, and they're goalkeepers, but then they're not really combining that maybe with upper body. So particularly with development athletes and female athletes, what you often see that is that the, at the elite end, they haven't optimized their lower body contribution to upper body force. So they're playing catch up. And so talking to Chris McLeod, he was saying, well, you know, in the back end of tennis sets, if you haven't got the capacity in the lower limb, you end up not being in the right position to hit the shot. You end up really, you know, swinging at it with the arm. It's very similar if, you know, you, you, you are fatigued in your lower limb when you're making a rugby tackle or if you're, if you're cooked in your lower limb, if you're pitching. And that will have a massive knock-on effect. So when we quantify the contribution of the lower limb, we're saying, you know, have they got enough here to ensure that they're not becoming shoulder-dominant in their throwing action? They're not becoming shoulder-dominant in their tennis serve. You know, are they generating and storing enough energy and transferring it into the arm to the distal segment for them to be able to produce force? And if they're not then there's a really nice low-hanging fruit. We can target that lower body strength. And by doing that, without even touching the shoulder or upper limb or changing the upper body program, we can have a big influence on someone's performance. So that's where it kind of largely grew from. And then we started to sort of like, you know, map athletes onto those quadrants. So conceptually, it's a great idea, but it comes to life when you start to talk to people in their own athletes and they say, well, yeah, actually this, this uh, young tennis player, the coach says she's very upper limb dominant. She's very shoulder dominant with her tennis strokes. You know, she gets a lot of shoulder sorenesses um, and we see that she's not really generating force from the ground up. And that's a technical coach using their eyes, using their coaching eye, but that overlaps and marries a lot with what you see on the force tests and force assessments um, and then equally you can see people who are perhaps you know producing huge forces from lower limb but don't have the same capacity to produce force in the upper limb and, and so they don't really have the ability to cope with those forces then again you might want to target more that upper limb force production in that that instance so it leads you down a route of having a conversation that might sit alongside some of the technical um, analysis that's going on as well with that athlete and, and it's only one part of a pretty complex puzzle obviously with um you know not too not too dissimilar to this you can look at like um dynamic strength index and you can look at say a jump versus a mid five pull and get a ratio can you you know moving away from the quadrant but along a similar vein can you create like a you know a numerical ratio that tells you what the upper body should be versus the lower body yeah, so um, there's the there's the uh, completely unevidenced uh, 50-30-20 rule. Although I say that, there's, I think there's one tennis paper which is cited around the 50-30-20 rule. 
And I believe there's a Japanese study where someone was strapped into a chair and various parts of them were relief released to see how much the lower body and trunk did actually contribute to the throwing action when you allowed them to go from strapped into a chair to, you know, full standing and, and taking a, taking a step. Um, so the 50, 30, 20 rule is probably about right in terms of 50% coming from lower body, 30% from trunk and 20% from the upper body in, in throwing performance. Um, but when you look at trying to make those kind of decisions on the ratios or the, I'd actually change that a little bit. I'd look at the individual scores. So let's say we take the ash test and we look in our cohort, our baseball players, you know, let's say we've got the Czech baseball team as an example. Um, and we look at them and we say, well, our median score for this group is around 165 Newtons. Okay. We've got 50 athletes and that's our median score. That'd be a really good start point for a line in the sand to be drawn before we've even compared that to throwing performance or before we've even compared that to people who get injured. So it's a pretty simplistic model. And similarly, you might look at an ISO mid thigh pull and you might go, well, you know, we hit about 3000 Newtons here as our cutoff point, but they're lines in the sand. And the good thing about the lines in the sand is you can, you know, you can rake over them and, and move them slightly and it might change whether you're with major league players, it might change whether you're with development athletes, it might change whether you're in, you know, the NFL. And actually, Vald um, have done a really good job of publishing a lot of normative data through a large a large number of athletes. So it's a very high end to a lot of, and so quite high-powered um, descriptive piece on you know, adductor squeezes on Nord board results in different sports and are starting to build out a similar thing with regard to upper limb. But, you know, the numbers are vastly lower because of the uh, sort of the lag you've got between the upper limb and, and lower limb research. But I think that's where you go to it. You go to what's normal from around the grounds and then what's normal for ours. So, Look at industry-based standards. If there's none available, make your own. And make that with sort of, you know, your best judgment using what you've got in front of you. Once you draw that line in the sand, you might see that that has to move based on experience of people who break down if they don't hit a certain threshold. You know, similar to the early Nordboard stuff where the original research value was about 337 as a cutoff for weak strong in a, in a Nordboard assessment. And then... You know, we set the standard of about 400 Newtons as a cutoff pass mark. And I believe Premier League and Champions League data was around 420, 430 Newtons. So you've got these industry standards out there that you can use. But if you don't have them, draw your own map using something like a median score, I think is a really good way of doing it. Yeah, and obviously you've got a quadrant for um, RFD versus peak force as well. Is there any kind of key take homes for that quadrant that you know people should be aware of? Yeah, definitely. The quadrant of doom, the low, low, the low peak force, <laughs> the uh, low rate of force. Everybody's got to have a quadrant of doom if you've got quadrants. Um, that has been too well associated with people who spend time on the injury list or who have you know more hits with regard to shoulder complaints. Um, that's across volleyball, across baseball. Um, that we've seen larger numbers through that. And again, like it's not a huge military cohort that here that we're dealing with, but you know, uh, definitely at the moment, it seems like that's the kind of trend. And what we've been looking at with certain teams is does the high high mean that there's a big correlation with performance? So, you know, the lovely thing would be able to say, all right, we've looked at a hundred pitches and if you've got high, RFD and high force production, it correlates almost directly with throwing velocity. Well, with one team, it didn't. We had 92 players and I think there was a 0.5, which is a reasonable correlation with RFD in a wide position at 200 milliseconds to throwing velocity. But recently, and in Nebraska, where I've done quite a bit of work now uh, with the Sharp team down there, 
with a cohort of 16 NCAA pitchers, the ash test RFD in a T position correlates really well, pretty strongly with um, four-seam pitch velocity. So there's starting to be these kind of performance outcomes around that high, high quadrant. And very early stages, I think um, Alejandro Sanchez uh, has published something now around spike velocity and a, a pretty good correlation there with with the RFD, again, in, in the ASH test. Um, but we'll see. Hopefully more research comes out along that line. But I think, you know, if you're coming at it from a, injury prevention standpoint, it would make sense that those people who can't produce high force, high peak force, and you, if they can't switch that on quickly, then it's going to increase their likelihood or potential likelihood of um, of sustaining an injury or certainly not being able to stabilize their shoulder um, under high stress. I've got one more question on these, on these quadrants before we move on. If you've, you know, if you've got a whole team of data, um, on these tests, whether it's looking at upper body, lower body, or peak force versus rate of force, you can kind of get averages and you can then group people into these um, into these quadrants because you've got enough data and comparisons. If you've got, say, an individual athlete, say you're in a solo sport, um, and you're working with one individual and you've got no data already on others, you've just got the one person, how do you decide where these kind of almost axes of the quadrants should sit on the graph? How do you kind of decide what's low and what's high for that one individual. Unless, you know, assuming you don't have other people you can compare them to in their sport. I think phone a, phone a friend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> reach out to me. Um, I, I think I, I had a conversation the other day and, and someone said, oh, we, we, were, we were looking, we were assessing some ash test data and um, we were sort of trying to, we were having these conversations about what was good and what was bad and then, you know, it was it was pretty key, a critical time point before a major competition. And I sort of said, well, I was available. <laughs> you, know, like, you could have given me a call and I'd have happily told you what I thought was like normal with regard to what I've seen. And normal is a difficult word when you're talking about N equals one. But I think you can apply, you know, what's what's an average score for an eye test in the ash Ash test. Well, it's somewhere around 1.6 newtons per kilogram, you know, and that's an average score. Like people, people have smashed that out of the park and there's some really good, you know, max scores, which are way higher than that. But across some athletes from UFC, some MMA fighters, some, um, some of the Olympic women throwers in China, some Olympic athletes from, I think, Colombia, 1.6 newtons per kilogram was a pretty good average score. So, you know, there's always going to be a start point for a conversation. I think you can you can do that. It might be quite blunt and it might not be representative of where your athlete is, but I think that's a good way of doing it. And then actually, if you've got a sport that isn't unilateral, um, you know, where you are expected to use both limbs equally, then you could always test the other limb. And the other limb in those kind of sports is probably around 8 to 10% difference. The normal kind of asymmetry, or I had this conversation the other day with someone, there's no such thing as normal asymmetry. But I think in a bilateral sport, you can start to say that. When you get to unilateral sports, it's not representative. So sometimes you'll be stronger and maybe often you'll be stronger in your non-dominant limb than in the throwing arm. Um, or in the dominant arm. And that may be just the mileage that ar- that arms had to go through, the current state of that arm at that point in a season or training block. Um, so it's more difficult probably to make those assumptions when you've got a unilateral sport if you're trying to use the opposite arm to make a comparison. Cool. No, that all makes sense. And I uh, definitely appreciate that. That's a really horrible, mean question that I just asked you there as well. <laughs> um, I want to kind of um, get as much kind of practical content as we can out of this conversation for people um, and have a bit more of a kind of so what factor. So we've got this or you've got this, um, you've, put, you've got this test that you've put out there and people can collect data in a valid way and, and use it in their settings. Um, and obviously you have hundreds, thousands of these conversations and therefore context that you can pull upon 
I'm just wondering in that experience, is there any interesting case studies where you or the team or, you know, the individual has collected the data and then what I want to know is kind of like, how did that data inform something in a process afterwards? So just kind of some interesting case studies where you've used the test to then do something with it um, practically, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the easiest place to start is with the ASH test. Other tests are available, so I will go on to something else in a minute. But um, with the ASH test, someone coming back, you know, let's let's say they're uh, post-stabilization, you're six weeks post-op, which I think is a really safe place if you're going submaximal testing to start to introduce these kind of long lever test positions. Um, as long as the athlete's well coached, they understand that they're doing it submaximally. Um, and you start to get a gauge as to what they can produce in those positions, but you know, they will naturally build up peak forces um, and probably won't really be hitting, you know, max RFDs until around week eight. So in that period, what you often end up doing is programming. So, you know, once someone hits a peak force, if they've got pre-injury data, that's even better. So if they hit 100% of their peak forces, often you find that RFD is is lower. And then it's about driving the program towards rate of force development exercises. So things that are more explosive intent, more ballistic um, catches, things like cable catches, rather than those kind of slow loaded exercises. And so that will very simply change and guide the program. So that's, that's, that's a very easy start point for where the ash test might be, might be useful. Um, I think if we go away from ash testing and force platform testing and we go towards uh, the force frame, so a dynamometer, so it doesn't matter if you're using a force frame or whether you're using a handheld dynamometer, but let's say you're looking at external rotation versus internal rotation testing. So we're trying to look at something that gives us an idea of balance IR to ER. What we kind of know now is that, you know, internal rotation is just through the functional anatomy is going to be stronger, but we know what the normal sort of cutoffs are. So around 0.86 ER to IR in a dominant dominant arm of a throwing athlete is a good sort of line in the sand to draw. What we see and what we've seen in teams is that when athletes throw and they're training at the start of a season, we see an increase in internal rotation force production just through training and perhaps deconditioning in the off season. They start to get better at using IR. And what happens is external rotation tends to drop off unless you do something specific with it. So what that's led to is now focusing direction specific loading to the external rotators. And the way we do that is we try not to massively influence changes in programs, but we'll add in micro doses of heavier isometric load for the external rotations in those cases. And I would say in bulk, you know, 80% of athletes that happens, the ER suffers if you don't do something about it in that pre-season training block. So spring training for baseball, but equally um, just because of the way we're designed, we tend to need a bit of a booster to our external rotation direction specific loading. That said, I remember one NFL case study and they were monitoring the player because of a previous surgery. So they'd been monitoring him for about five months and then suddenly the internal rotation force started to drop off. And within a couple of weeks, he ruptured his pet major on a bench press. And, you know, as a result of that, looking back, is the drop in IR an indicator of higher risk of then, you know, almost having to stabilize more anteriorly. So you start to use your pec more. You've probably also got a bit more shear force because those stabilizers aren't working anymore. And then suddenly you're exposing that pec to higher shear forces, higher strain, higher stress. And is that why it then ends up leading to failure? We don't know. You know, some of these are, uh, hypothetical 
conclusions that we've drawn. But I would say what you get from all of this is you are able to decide where you need to target. So then what we we do post-repair is we make sure that that internal rotation force production gets back up, not just to 100% of pre-injury, but probably to a safe space at, you know, 10% better or 20% better than it was pre-injury to help them to stabilize whilst maintaining balance um, around the shoulder. So it's a, it's not a, you know, a recipe that everybody gets external rotation loading in their program. Um, It's a pretty safe place to start but it's using the data to define the direction you might load someone in and then going back and retesting to close the loop and saying, actually, we've moved the needle and now with balanced force production across the shoulder, we can actually produce higher IR or ER forces than we were doing before. One of the things I'm wondering, actually, while I hear you talk is, I can't remember who the author of the paper is. I read a paper on shoulders um, where they just kind of in a, in a big population looked at kind of which movements should be strongest or, you know, you could call it gearing or, um, you know, where flexion should be stronger than abduction and IR is normally for most people stronger than ER. Um, and ultimately that kind of gives you a curve if you put it on a graph. Is there any kind of like kind of curve shapes or gearing, however you want to phrase it, that you look for in a shoulder? Obviously it changes for sport, but do you look at kind of like a relationship between all those values? Um, it's it's something that I've explored with with um, individual athletes when we're taking a deeper look. So we might look at more of the kind of force vector approach. Um, but most of the time, the simple ER, IR will give you a lot of the answers. And then also, you know, you're going to be looking at um, yeah, horizontal push, pull, uh, vertical push and pull as well. And using that, to prescribe their kind of loading um you know and i think that's that's often good enough rather than digging into the 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 depths of looking at like you know uh long lever flexion or horizontal adduction um you don't get as much back for it i don't think as you do perhaps around say the hip um uh, but that said you know i think as we build information it's sort of, it's about bang for buck for me. So if I believe that that was going to give me a lot more to add or what I was doing wasn't finding anything that I could sort of change or influence, I'd start to dig a bit deeper, but there's always stuff that we can, we can use around ERIR and just simple push pull that I think makes enough of a difference that we don't need to then dig down to the kind of force vector approach. Yeah, and I guess it becomes it becomes complicated, doesn't it? Because then you might be comparing, you know, apples and oranges. You might have a long lever flexion and abduction test, maybe, but then you might have short lever IR, ER, and it's you know, is it fair to compare long lever, short lever? And I guess it gets quite complicated for like test validity and positions. I need to show you a picture of my whiteboard, which has got a force vector diagram that I recreated from a Hick and Acklin paper in 2018. So, you know, what I say. And what I'm trying to look at is, is, is probably quite different. Um, yeah, I think, I think there's potential to start to look and, and, and look at the modelling of the upper limb in the, in the same way that people have looked at the lower limb. And I think um, it's something I'm keen to do. And I think the functional anatomy does lead us down a lot of these kind of routes um, with our exercise prescription. So, yeah, I think watch this space. I'll, I'm, I'm currently trying to sort of, create a similar force vector model um maybe i'll share a photo of my whiteboard from the hick and acklin paper but i need to go and get those guys to just help um help put them together which is similar to some of those great papers from um from around the hip which i think has driven so much good work i mean i've seen your whiteboard drawings before i'm sure it'd be a da vinci-esque uh diagram that's on there um, no doubt. Is there, is there anything, you know, we'll, we'll talk about like where people can find you in just a second. Is there anything shoulder wise that we haven't covered that you think is, is missing from this conversation or people need to hear? I think, um, one, one of the biggest sort of spaces that is, is untapped if you like is, is, uh, you know, soccer. So you know, Premier League football, championship football, European football. And I've been working in that sport for 10 years and, 
you know, I suppose I was fortunate that there aren't that many shoulder injuries. Um, and, you know, when you get them, often they are the type of injury that isn't necessarily something that needs any complexity to it. But there are enough shoulder injuries and instabilities. And there are these goalkeepers who dive around and do stupid things with their shoulders and land and smash and, you know, have to have high mobility. And I have been working recently um, behind the scenes with a, with a couple of teams in the UK. And we've been looking at goalkeeper profiling. And we've come up with a pretty simple set of tests that looks at goalkeeper profiling. So just you know, breaking it into the boxes as I try and do of, of kind of mobility, looking at peak force assessment, then looking at more sort of uh, dynamic strength measures. So looking at RFD and ASH test, um, but looking at things like plyo push-ups, I think that's a, a really interesting area, especially for sort of return to contact in rugby NFL. Um, Adele Fanning does a great job. She's doing her PhD. Aidan Oakley's published some of the stuff he did in lockdown around, you know, looking at forces there. And I think um, Chris Jenkins has got some really nice exercises as well. For, you know, he's worked a lot with, in rugby. So there's a real space around objectifying that kind of chaotic return to sport phase, which is an area which marries nicely with goalkeepers, marries nicely with rugby players and contact athletes that needs to be further explored. Um, and then even things like trying to objectify a landmine press, so a kneeling landmine press, an example, is a really nice test that you can start to use in a sort of VBT way using a, a velocity-based training approach and an assessment tool um, just to not only profile a goalkeeper, but also to um, you know, tailor their training. Because with footballers, again, it's the, the fixture congestion often means that they don't get a lot of time to kind of you know load in season. But when they do, it's nice to have a guide that allows you to train optimally. Um, specifically around come some of the stuff around sort of producing force for throwing, um, but also shoulder stability and power production in the upper limb. So I think that's a really good area that's something I'm really keen on working on. And I think more stuff will come from the work that I've done with those teams over the last year. Cool. And we'll look out for that, mate. Um, Obviously, there's, you've done other episodes on informed performance that are very shoulder specific. So, um, just for the listeners' benefit, I think you know, listen to this one, obviously, and then um, there's a, there's a backlog of episodes that you've done um, with other people, and then there's also a lot of episodes that you've done with people specific to shoulders to kind of extend this content for them. Um, other than our show, where's the best place for people to to follow you at the moment? Yep, I think you, I mean you can go through the website. Um, you'll get my contact details on there so you, you can contact me directly through email so it's um, just athleticshoulder.com and the best space is either LinkedIn just Ben Ashworth obviously on there or at Athletic Shoulder on Instagram I think those are the those are the key places cool and then obviously we mentioned your courses earlier where's the best place for people to find um, those if they want to sign up yeah well they're Largely on my social media, so Instagram, the links in the bio on that, uh, on Twitter as well. But the the courses are on Eventbrite. So the one in Vancouver at Rise Fitness is on the 23rd of July and the one in Las Vegas at the Apex um, Arena, the UFC Apex, is on the 29th of July. So um, we're, I'll also be in uh, Northern Ireland um, in October, we just nailed down a course venue out there, which is great. And uh, I'll be at the Lewin Clinic. Uh, this will put some pressure on him because he offered it me the other day and Colin said, come do one at Lewin Clinic in January. So an early advert for that. So I'll, I'll, I'll be in London. I'll finally be in London doing something in January for sure. And I'm sure later in the year, there'll be a couple of other courses um, for the UK-based uh, you know, practitioners uh, to come along and to 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 pick apart what I'm what I'm delivering and to you know add value and come and meet and you know have a good conversation. 
Well, mate, it's always, you know, we catch up regularly anyway about life and, and obviously the show, but um, just from a, from a show, from a selfish perspective, it's, it's great to come on and actually just pick your brains on shoulders. Cause um, I, for one, definitely haven't abused our relationship enough for that reason. So um, yeah, it's good to actually uh, talk more topically as well. I think you'll have to come on the course at some point. Um, <laughs> I think that's a good idea, but you know, the idea is it's pretty impossible to get um, everything into a one day, but I, I try my best to at least creatively challenge people the way people think you know this this shoulder stuff has been built up over a number of years now some brilliant people out there that i sort of learned from um in the us and in the uk as well some some great people i mean i started out with ian horsley uh who i spoke to the other day and i think we're going to get the band back together for a uh for a tour at some point um but i'm always looking for opportunities to collaborate with good people uh, it really helps me because, you know, I, I'm I'm at a sort of point in my career where I finally recognize I, I don't know it all and there's a lot to learn from other people. And that's that's the beauty of this now. I put myself out there, but, um, you know, linking up with good people and spending time with them is, is uh, part of the part of the beauty of being able to go on the go on tour to US, go on tour to venues around the country. And, uh, yeah, I think people just don't people don't reach out enough you know people worry that maybe things are going to be too busy but i'd encourage you you know if you're listening to this just just get in touch i love a conversation about a shoulder um wherever you wherever you're coming at it from and i'll do my very best to um to get back to you yeah and i'll vouch for that you're always very generous with your time to me as well so um yeah i think people should definitely do that if they're listening to this now um cool we'll um we'll finish up there mate but yeah great to uh Great to talk to you as the guest on your own show. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to listen back to this one. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be hosted by you. I think you do a much better job of hosting than I do. So um, yeah, well done with the questions because uh, yeah, hopefully you got a bit of, uh, bit of good stuff out. No doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.